Welcome to Core IM. I'm Michael Shen, a leadership fellow and internist at New York City Health and Hospitals. And I'm Aaron Troy, an internal medicine intern at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. So Aaron, last April 2021, you and I were at the SGIM annual meeting. That's the Society for General Internal Medicine. And there were a ton of great lectures on telemedicine. Yeah. As a medical intern in the COVID era, I know telemedicine is going to be a major part of my career, no matter what I go into or what I practice. But I've never had any clinical education on how to best care for patients by video or phone, aside from have a good Wi-Fi connection and then probably wear pants. (laughs) If there actually is anything I've learned from the pandemic, it is to wear pants during a televisit. But in all seriousness, I remember coming out of the April 2020 surge of COVID in New York City to this whole new world of ambulatory medicine, 100% telemedicine, converting all visits to phone or video calls, etc. And at this point, two years later, needless to say, we've realized the power of televisits in the overall landscape of outpatient care. So Aaron and I wanted to consolidate a few tips for you. Our listeners. Yeah, thankfully, SJM brought the best minds in the biz together for some incredible sessions. So we decided to pick their brains and collect their top 10 tips for telemedicine visits. Top 10 tips? Is that like an alliteration? Top 10 telemedicine <laughs> tips. You forgot a T. Oh, t- uh, four, T's, <laughs> four T's. Yeah, top 10 telemedicine tips. Not the four T score. Okay, we're going to talk about the pre-visit, the history, the physical exam, and kind of a few big picture telemedicine tips. And I promise you that some of these physical exam tips you have never heard before, because I certainly didn't. Faux show. Yeah, Uh, we're gonna get pretty creative. All right, Aaron, take us into the pre-visit. Preparing for the televisit, what's tip number one? One does not simply walk into a televisit. (laughs) Okay. All right, well, uh, any Lord of the Rings fans out there? Does not simply walk into Mordor. Yeah, we can't make a good listicle without some quality memes, Michael. Yeah. You know that. <laughs> um, never walk into a televisit without preparing. But before we dive into this one, I want to introduce our experts, who we actually invited back from SGIM to speak on our show today. They actually had a great talk there titled, We're Going to Need a Longer Stethoscope. Great title. So first up, Dr. Nadine Pardee. I'm Nadine Pardee. I'm an assistant clinical professor of medicine at UCSF and a primary care doctor at the VA. Dr. Amy Liu. I'm Amy Liu. I am also an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Um, My main role is the medical director for a federally qualified health center. And Dr. Juliana Macri. I'm Juliana Macri. I am an assistant clinical professor uh, affiliated with UCSF and I work out of the San Francisco VA. Now, Dr. Pardee, Dr. Liu, and Dr. Macri were actually in the telehealth game long before COVID. And the thing they all decided was one of the most important aspects of the televisit was this, to begin with the end in mind. Aaron, what did they mean by this? What they're saying is you need to decide what the goal of the visit is. You can't just wing it as much as you could in an in-person visit. Hmm. Why do you feel like it's more challenging to wing a televisit than it is an in-person visit? There are lots of reasons. When you walk into a clinic room, you probably have the patient's vitals and a chief complaint, which you might not at the start of a televisit. Hmm. At the end of a televisit, your diagnostic and therapeutic options are also more limited. In clinic, you can easily get lab work, an EKG, or even an x-ray. To get any of that data after a televisit, 
need to decide whether each piece of information is worth asking the patient to leave their house or workplace. You know, you sort of have to think about clinical reasoning before you even get on the call. Is this a follow-up call? Is this an acute visit? Um, What kind of things are available to the patient? So I think it'd be useful to have an example. Let's look at musculoskeletal complaints. They're very common and can be quite intimidating on televisit. But if you use this idea of keeping the end in mind, you can plan out your management ahead of time. With most musculoskeletal visits, you are sort of going to divide your management into two buckets. One is going to be, this is some kind of an emergent issue or surgical issue. For the vast majority of other issues, though, you're going to be doing conservative management. If you feel comfortable in the visit, you can rule out the emergent, urgent things. Then you you sort of end up in that other bucket, and those things are very amenable to talking about over a televisit. Right. Hence, one does not simply walk into a televisit. (laughs) Okay, so Aaron, can you sum up some takeaways for us? When you pre-chart... Come up with some concrete red flags that you could find out during a televisit that would make you want to send the patient to a higher level of care. And at the same time, think about where you might send them and with what level of urgency if any of those red flags turn out to be positive. All right, so that's tip number one, how to keep the end in mind before you head into a televisit. Okay, on to tip number two. Aaron, what do you have for us? Wait, what is this? Where are you? Yo, Blink-182, what a throwback. (laughs) Seriously, where are you though? Um, This tip is quite literally a reminder to ask your patient where they are at the start of the call. I think all of us have stories about patients being in surprising locations. Like, for example, the patient that called Dr. Macri from a boat in the middle of a lake, or that patient that called Dr. Pardee from vacation. The plane was taking off, and the flight attendant was like, Sir, you need to turn off your electronics. That is hilarious, actually. Birthday parties, being like, Doc, have a drink. Just (laughs) soccer games. Literally, you have to be prepared for anything. You might just have to make the visit a quick med check visit and plan for the patient to come in or to reschedule. You know, I've definitely done all of those before. But actually, one really important follow-up point here is not just where they are, but if they're in a private area and if there's other people in the room. It's actually important for several reasons. The first is a serious one, patient privacy. The patient was very reassuring. No, I want to talk to you now. I really need to get these things resolved. And then, you know, as the visit goes on, it turns out we're not just talking about his knee issue. We're talking about depression and anxiety and, you know, some really intense stuff. And we're in a not a private setting. So there's a challenge here, uh, figuring out how you can balance the need to provide care to that person, but also making sure that you're providing it in an appropriate and respectful way. Another reason it's important to know who's in the room is that family members and caregivers can be really great sources of collateral. Yeah, I've heard this called the tattletale phenomenon. One patient told me they take their amlodipine every evening. Then I heard his wife off screen say he hasn't taken that in weeks. (laughs) What a tattletale. Yeah, but seriously, a caregiver or loved one in the room can be super helpful. And that extra person can often help with the telehealth medium itself. Like, I know that my grandma often has trouble navigating her iPhone. So, you know, my mom's always there to kind of help her and tell her what buttons are what. 
But, you know, that extra person in the room really can be the safety net for a technical challenge. So practically, tip number two is always ask. Where are you? And also, who else is in the room? All right. Our next section is the history. So we have two tips for you here. Tip number three in our list of 10 is the history is the same. True that. The history is the part of the visit with the fewest differences between in-person and telemedicine. You can ask all the same questions and your patient can give you all the same answers. Yeah, this is like classic intern report type stuff. Aaron, I'm sure you get this all the time. Oh yeah. Know your clinical scripts. As with most things, I have found that the history provides the vast majority of the clinical information that I need and the physical exam supports it. Examples are patient coming in with sort of insidious chronic hip pain and limited range of motion on chronic steroids with HIV, I'm already thinking about osteonecrosis before I've even done the exam. And then limited range of motion antalgic gait is starting to push me in that direction versus someone coming in with risk factors for a septic joint who tells me it's red hot and they can't bear weight. I'm done, right? I, I, I can do that over the phone. Um, and a video visit will give me much more information, but I've already triaged based on um, those red flags. So that makes a lot of sense. You know, focus on the red flags. That's going to be paramount in these cases. All right. Tip number four. Best med rec ever. <laughs> this one's pretty simple, guys. We all know the struggle with the med recs. Sometimes in clinic, it's hard to know what your patient is or isn't taking. Actually, the best proxy for whether or not they're taking their meds is for you to just ask them on a televisit to show you their morning meds. If they can walk to their pillbox or cabinet and you see everything the EMR says should be there, you have way more information than you could possibly get in the comfort of your exam room. And you know, there's some important takeaways here. Once you know exactly what the patient is taking, a televisit is actually a really convenient setting to do some really great med management. Here, I'm going to bring in another clinical expert from SGIM, Dr. Tim Anderson. So I'm Tim Anderson. I'm a general internist and a assistant professor of medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center at Harvard Med School. Dr. Anderson has written a lot about using telemedicine as an avenue for de-prescribing in the geriatric population. And he gave a great lecture at SGIM about this. My own practice has been that telemedicine has actually helped with the follow-up of de-prescribing and that, you know, it, it's somewhat hard to convince patients to come back in physically to a clinic just to talk to me about stopping a medication or, to be honest, the flip side of that, sometimes dose-escalating medications and chronic disease management. And I think televisits really help in this area, you know, especially for clinics that don't have the pharmacists or the resources to do this kind of work. I think, honestly, the quick telephone visit, whether it's billed or not, has been a really nice way to follow up on people. And I can think of a few folks who are, for example, tapering their benzos kind of slowly and gradually with, you know, once every two month phone check-ins. And it seems to work better than I think I was used to in the past when it, I could only get people to come in to see me physically every six months or so. And I know a lot of you out there can really relate to that. Okay, Aaron, those were tips three and four related to history taking over televisits. Remind us what those were. Tip number three, the history is the same. And tip number four, best med rec ever. Cool. All right. Well, on to the physical exam. Hit me with tip number five, Aaron. I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. Look at this stuff. He 
<laughs> okay. Throwback to Disney and yeah. like VHS tapes. Oh my god. I was just thinking a couple of days ago about that Disney VHS intro. It was like, da da da. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Dude, VHS. That's so classic. What a throwback. Anyway, seriously, patients do actually have so many gadgets and gizmos these days. If they have it, you might as well use it. Especially if I find myself getting a little flummoxed about how, how can I assess this particular complaint? I think, okay, if I had this person in clinic with me, what would I want to do? And then how can I adapt that to video? Hmm, I love that approach. And so, you know, some, some basic but specific things are really, really remembering vitals are quite important. Um, and so more and more and more patients have peripheral devices at home. Pop quiz, Aaron. Name all the peripheral devices. Go. Uh, Apple Watch iPhone? No, 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 no. (laughs) Well, I mean, actually, I have asked my patients to tell me about their resting heart rate from their Apple Watch before. Yeah. But what else is out there? Blood pressure cuffs. They can be super useful, but they've kind of been restricted to patients with more disposable income. Just so you know, on Amazon or at a local pharmacy, you can get home blood pressure cuffs for as low as 20 bucks. Oh, and patients um, sometimes have those wrist blood pressure cuffs. Just an FYI. They are studied, and generally they're not that reliable. So I wouldn't go for those. Good to know. But Michael, the bargains won't stop for your peer-reviewed studies. Pulse oximeters, 10 bucks. Okay, literally as we were writing this, Aaron uh, looked up all the prices of all the things. So Gotta get that shopping on. During COVID, pulse oxes were the way I triaged. I worked on the COVID hotline in New York City for a bit, people calling in, asking questions about COVID, some of them symptomatic. So I definitely sent a few patients to the emergency Mm. room for hypoxia. Okay, Aaron, what else? Scales. Even ones that can connect to smartphones, calculate BMI, and estimate body fat percentage start at 10 bucks. Yeah, that's actually a really great way that I have my patients trend their weight uh, and also their volume status if they have heart failure. So, in sum... For an initial upfront investment of 40 bucks, patients can measure all their vitals every televisit and between visits too. Yeah, and then you have to add tax in there. You know? <laughs> Fair. So, 40 plus tax. All right. That's pretty good though. I think the only vital sign we're missing is respiratory rate. Well, actually, Dr. Macri says she does have a way of measuring respiratory rate over televisit. She sometimes has the patient do something distracting and then counts their respiratory rate. Probably more useful if the patient is complaining of dyspnea. Again, this was useful during COVID for me. I could hear people be tachypnic over the phone because they were huffing and puffing. All right, tip number six. It's all about that camera angle. Is this like an all about that bass reference? Nope, it's just oh. about that selfie stick. That uh, okay. That camera like life. Instagram selfie stick action. You got to get your good angles. You you're know? right, you're right. Okay, so this tip comes from Dr. Hardy. An example of something that was really striking to me that I felt like I missed was a patient coming in with skin nodules. And at the end of the visit, I had them, they they actually, I didn't even remember to do this, but they like wiped their face. And I saw that they had like significant RA changes in their hands that was not even on my differential for the nodules. And ultimately that's what it was. And it reminded me, you know, you have to really think about, okay, what what all is on my differential? What can I see? You know, this goes back to our other point of there's a lot of stuff we take for granted in an in-person visit. Being able to see the entire person 
you know, and their body is like one of those things. Some important tips for success are to make sure that you can actually see their knees in the frame. And that might require either moving the patient, having them change their clothes, making sure that you can demonstrate for them, stand up, um, that you're wearing pants. (laughs) See, I told you wearing pants is important. And or coaching them on, actually, can you put the camera on a lower object? Can you put it on the coffee table in your house um, so that I can actually see that area? So this sort of another area that's different is not being limited by the initial framing that you're given of a patient. I really like that. Don't be limited by the initial framing of your patient. I think that applies to like, life in general somehow. Anyways, Aaron, what's tip number seven? Okay, tip number seven, the uncanny virtual shoulder exam. This one's a really creative tip, and it's from a study titled The Virtual Shoulder and Knee Physical Examination, published in the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine. Yeah, I think MSK exams are one of the most challenging things over televisit because it's hard to feel like you did a good exam when you're not able to be there and palpate and maneuver the joint yourself, right? Well, this paper is probably one of the first I've seen to tackle a comprehensive shoulder and knee tele-exam. Yeah, it's got a ton of great tips, and we would encourage you all to read it. For the sake of the podcast, though, we decided to pick out one of the most creative aspects of the paper, and that is using daily household items as weights to add that resistance component to your physical exam. So Aaron... We're going to try this right now. Oh, we're doing this? Yeah. I want you to go grab two bags. BRB. And a bunch of canned goods, like four tomato cans of goods. Or you can use a few water bottles. Got it. Okay. So let's say you're coming in with shoulder pain. Ouch. So before we use our bags, what are some of the things that you might ask your patient to do first? Mm. I'd probably start with what I would do in the office. I'd observe the joint. I'd ask them to position their camera so I can see at least the top of their body. And ideally, I'd like to be able to see the skin around their shoulder. Great. And another tip here is to ask the patient to dress appropriately for the physical exam. Okay, so I'm looking at your shoulder. No deformities that I can see. Very flattering, (laughs) Michael. Then, you know, maybe some range of motion. I can ask the patient to palpate in certain key areas depending on their chief complaint. Great. Okay, now let's say I'm thinking rotator cuff most common injury, right? Uh, Let's show our audience how to put these bags to use. All right, what do I do? Okay, so we'll start with the empty can test. Do you remember what that is? Yeah, this one tests just the supraspinatus muscle and tendon, which is one of the four rotator cuff muscles, right? Right, okay, so I want you to start with your two bags. You're gonna put two canned items into each one, or alternatively, two water bottles into each one. All right, now hang those bags on both of your wrists. And then we're gonna do the empty can test. So put your arms out to each side with the bags Mm -hmm. on your wrists. Your arms are gonna be parallel to the ground and then you're gonna point your thumbs down. Mm -hmm. That's the empty can test. So glad our listeners can't see me doing this. It's okay, dude, you look great. Thanks. (laughs) Now I think there's a few things to notice here. One is that Having two bags, one on each hand, is pretty useful because you can compare between shoulders. The other thing you want to do is to ask your patient if they're feeling pain. All right. No pain. All right. So there you have it. Your supraspinatus is probably okay. Yes. All right. Let's do another one. Yeah. So we have one more example for you. This time we're going to test two of the other muscles of the rotator cuff, the infraspinatus and the teres minor. 
So usually in the office, I do this by putting resistance against external rotation. But here, you're going to have the patient lay down so that they can use gravity and the bag to act as that resistance. And we're going to have to do one arm at a time here. So let's say you're testing your right shoulder. Aaron, I'm going to have you lay down on your left side in lateral decubitus. And then you're going to bend your right elbow 90 degrees. And then you're going to place the bag on that wrist. And so when you externally rotate that arm, you're, you're putting resistance on that arm, essentially. Nice. So with a bag and some canned goods, you've tested most of my rotator cuff. And virtually at that. Yeah, pretty creative way to do an exam, I think. Um, okay, on to tip number eight, the functional physical exam. This tip is a call to brainstorm outside-of-the-box ways to examine patients when they're at home. Think about it. What kinds of things can we assess at home just as well, if not better, than we can in the office? All right. So we actually did some brainstorming already. Um, some of the stuff that we came up with is like you can assess for METs, you know, have somebody climb up a flight of stairs or two. Um, uh, NYHA class for heart failure, just by looking at them and seeing, you know, what kind of symptoms they might be having at rest or walking around. You can assess fall risk. Throw back to the geriatric assessments five pearls episode with Shreya and Manali. Ask patients to simply cross their arms and stand up. And please don't do this if the patient is by themselves. I feel like yeah, I don't want to encourage dangerous <laughs> physical exam maneuvers, um, but just make sure the patient has kind of support near them. You don't want your fall risk assessment to end up in an actual fall, yeah, right? Agreed for sure. Mobility with the timed get up and go test. Do you remember how to do that, Aaron? Ask the patient to get up, walk 10 feet away from their chair, then 10 feet back to their chair and time how long it takes until they sit down again. You can also assess um, another ADL by asking patients to put on and take off a sweater or jacket. Oh, and Dr. Lou had another good one. Yeah, she was shadowing a neurologist, and they were talking about how to do neuro exams over telemedicine. One of the uh, interesting and uh, creative ones that she talked about was... Um, testing for proprioception and he has to give himself eye drops um, for his chronic eye condition. And she asked him, are you able to give yourself eye drops um, without, you know, any help? Um, and uh, the ability for him to do that already suggests that his proprioception is intact. So she's like, that is actually better than any other type of specific neurologic testing that I can do, um, even over video. We could go on and on, but really this is a call for active brainstorming. Having your patient at home should inspire you to think outside the box about what we're really trying to assess and whether there's a non-textbook way to check it. So now let's zoom out a little bit. You know, we're in a world now where we have both in-person visits and televisits. I think it's important to think about how we use these different types of visits to optimally care for our patients. And that brings us to tip number nine. We are almost there, folks. <laughs> we got 10 tips. So tip number nine is one of the best ways to utilize telemedicine, in my opinion. It is the virtual home visit. There's a lot you can learn about a patient medically from their home. You can assess for cleanliness and ability to keep things organized. You can see if they're actually able to use their kitchen and do things around there. Mm -hmm. You can assess for fall risk. You can see if the patient has handrails 
and if they have their walker around or if there are carpets that increase risk for falls. There's mm-hmm. a lot you can tell just by getting a little window into a patient's apartment or home. Yeah, and like cords on the floor and stuff like that. Absolutely. Just a, a, a key way to frame the televisit in a way that you honestly can't do in, in clinic. Yeah, tip number nine, um, using the televisit as a home visit. Uh, tip number 10. The transitional care visit. Let's be honest. No patient should ever get 100% of their care virtually. For sure. So this tip is about how we can use our televisits to really complement the in-person care that we provide. First up, if you're working on the wards, think about scheduling patients with close interval televisits if you don't think they can make it into clinic within the week. I love that. One of telemedicine's greatest benefits is its accessibility, and we really should be harnessing that whenever we can to keep patients well-monitored and plugged in during high-risk times. One last point that Dr. Anderson raised was for patients who you realize mid-visit need that in-person level of care. Rather than punting everything to that visit, you can do a lot during your televisit to tee yourself and the patient up for that clinic appointment. I love that, like teeing yourself up. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Next time I end a televisit, I'm going to think about what I can do to make my next visit more productive. And next time I discharge a high-risk patient, I'm going to ask myself whether a close interval televisit would improve their care. Whew. I am both pooped and super stoked after diving into those top 10 telemedicine tips. Could not agree more. This episode um, has a few take-home points, so... Let's run through those tips one more time. Remember, the more you test yourself, the greater your... Aaron, this makes sense here. It's not that uh, episode. Couldn't (laughs) help myself. All right, let's run the list. Our first tips are for your pre-visit. Tip number one, one does not simply walk into a televisit without a concrete plan. Number two, where are you? And who are you with? Uh, Our next tips about uh, taking a history. Number three, the history is the same. Number four, best med rec ever. These next tips are about your physical exam. Number five, gadgets and gizmos aplenty. Number six, it's all about the camera angle. Number seven, the uncanny virtual MSK exam. Number eight, the functional physical exam. And our final tips about kind of unique roles that televisits can play in the continuum of care. Number nine, the virtual home visit. And number 10, the transitional care visit. And that's a wrap. Can it, double bag it, and lift (laughs) it with your thumb pointed down. Nice. All right, Aaron, I'll leave you to your workout. Thanks, man.